The spin is supported by NatWest. Why? Because NatWest loves cricket. The skills it teaches and the communities it creates and want it to be easy for everyone to get involved. To find out about how NatWest is helping make cricket open to all, search NatWest Cricket. If you listened to our last episode, you might have heard me making a very shameless plea for a helicopter. I wanted one to bring me back from Liverpool, where I was covering the netball on the weekend, just so that I could get to Lords in time for the final on Sunday. Well, I've got news. I didn't get a helicopter. I did get a train, though. I would also like to say right now how kind and intelligent and noble and magnificent the sports editor of The Guardian is. The England netball team had to fend for themselves on Sunday morning. I hurtled down to NW8 and positioned myself in the front of the press box next to the Guardian's finest, Fick Marks, Ali Martin, Andy Bull and Barney Ronay. Uh, and yes, boss, of course, I'll be covering the Arctic Circle open water night swimming for as long as you want me to. I also would like to say a word about New Zealand. Aren't Kiwis just the best people? I had lots of them get in touch straight after the game. I mean, as soon as it ended to say congratulations and to say very kindly that they hoped I was enjoying myself. And I just can't even imagine the vast national well of decency that must exist in the land of the long white cloud. I have also invited a few people to join me up here on my own little white cloud of happiness. Comedian Atif Nawaz, who has been living his best life at this World Cup. Commentator Dan Norcross, who I suspect would say the same, although he's also here because he helped see me through some very nervy moments at Lords on Sunday. Crick Buzz's Barrett Sanderason has been travelling up and down the country in a motorhome from game to game at this World Cup. And as the final seems to have been scripted by a Hollywood screenwriter, it's entirely appropriate to have cricket filmmaker Barney Douglas with us. My name is Emma John, and I'm so happy I could cry. <laughs> England are World Cup winners. Today's show is devoted entirely to their game against New Zealand in the final. We'll go through that match over by over and, where possible, ball by ball. It was a game of twists and turns, not to mention a ricochet, runouts and redemption. That was the best World Cup final ever. This is the best spin episode ever. It's the spin! I'm Emma John and this is The Spin, the cricket podcast that's going to wake up every day for the next four years and whisper to itself that England are still world champions. Sitting around the boundary of our oval table today, I say sitting, I mean floating. Dan is at backward point, Atif is at extra cover, Barney's at long on, Barrett's at deep backward square leg. I'm at my usual position in Cow Corner and we've got so many guests, we'd struggle to squeeze either Shakib Al-Hassan or Mike Atherton in. If they do want to turn up, they can always perch on someone's lap. Atherton, of course, has made some wonderful contributions to the final with his usual insightful analysis and thoughtful commentary. My favourite bit was when he said halfway through the England innings, our producer's got a good sense of humour. He's just asked me to remind everyone that in the case of a tie, the match will go to a super over. And then he giggled. Even the gods have feet of clay. So, everybody, where did we all watch the World Cup final? I'm going to start with Barney. For the first time in many years, I really, 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 really wanted to be at this match, and I wasn't there. I was at home with mates on the sofa with beers and pizza and was absolutely transfixed by this. I've never seen anything like it. Nothing like it in all my life watching cricket. When you say you had the pizza, I presume you had that delivered to your address because there was no point during the day that you were no, moving from the No, sofa. no, we couldn't leave the room. We couldn't leave the seat, as everyone knows, in cricket folklore. The pizza went everywhere. The beers went everywhere. Wallpapers ruined. Place is an absolute mess, and I'm very pleased. With that. <laughs> so Stokes, you can you can pay for the redecoration of my house. <laughs> Atif, what about you? I was there. I was at Lords. Um, I thought about just staying at home and watching it on TV, just for the novelty of it. You know, watching a match on TV. I haven't done Wait, that. Hold on a tick. You knew that you could go to Lords, and you thought about oh, staying know, at home. So hold, would you not rather sit in your pants and eat a gluten-free pizza while watching it on free-to-air television? Like, I mean, I don't know. I I think that's a pretty good option. I, in the end, I kind of thought, you know, it's a, it's a nice day. 
It was raining. I like the rain. So I went out. I was like, okay, what the heck? Let's go out there. I'll go see Dan and the boys and give them a hug or whatever. Um, but yeah, it was amazing. What an occasion to be just to be there. I'll remember that forever. Oh, me too. Dan, you and I were both also yes. in the media centre. Well, I, well, I watched it in six distinct locations. Um, I watched it in the Australian Radio SEN box uh, with Barrett and Adam Collins. So I've got the opportunity to ask such fantastic questions of Damien Fleming at the start of the match as... So, Damo, what do Australia need to do to bridge the enormous gulf between their white ball cricket and England's over the next four years? Because, really, they're light years behind where England are, which was just joyful, being able to be patronising and condescending. Then I went up to the BBC TMS box and the Five Live boxes to commune with my crew, who were, and we'll come on to it later, in various stages of terrible disrepair, tears, terror, anxiety... Then there was a bits with you lot, the scribblers, which culminated in a terrific, terrific moment uh, at the end when um, former England player was pacing up and down, shouting expletives at umpire Dharmasena. Then the other two locations were the nursery bit with the big screen, because that's where Felix White and um, Greg James and all that lot were. And they weren't able to watch it live. They just couldn't stand it. They needed to hear the noise and then see what happened. They were too petrified of watching it live. And uh, for the rest of the time, I was chain-smoking on the ledge, which you shouldn't do if anyone from Lords is listening. I usually apologise. Where you come out of the media centre, because you can just see between the railings and the, um, and the top can. of the That's where I actually watched the very first over, because I had been standing down at the bottom of the media centre and I realised I wasn't going to make it up the stairs in time because I was wearing high heels. I dressed up nice for the World Cup final, by the way. And uh, so I actually watched, I crouched down so that I could watch through that tiny little slit that you can yeah. see. It's a great place to cry as well, <laughs> because you're mostly, you're mostly left alone. So that's where I went for the enormous sob wrenching sobs, you know, the, aw- the awful stuff. Barrett, you were also in the media centre too. That's the day I realised that even English people can show emotions. Uh, <laughs> because, honestly, uh, I was shuffling between the SEN radio station with Dan and bothering everyone else in the press box because I didn't have to write. So I was loving it being a radio commentator at a World Cup final. Who'd have thunk it? <laughs> and uh, there I was stood uh, next to Graham Swan, who was really, really, really getting excited for his sake, I really hoped England would pull it off. I, do, I think he would have suffered a stroke if they had it because he was right next to me. He was running around. I made it a point. a couple of us out with him. Oh, you know. yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, I made it a point not to look into his eyes whenever, like, because it was every ball that was creating drama, right? And when it didn't go England's way, I was looking away because I thought I would come in his way. And, you know, all these English journalists come to India and Bangladesh and they look at us journalists, get excited in the press box and they'll be like, oh, that's not how cricket should be covered. Yeah, we and don't then like I it. stand there, uh, like, you know, in the Lord's, hallowed Lord's press box, looking around me, everyone's clapping and jumping and I'm like, hey, hey hang on a second. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> but for the first time, I actually didn't mind it. I, mm-hmm. in, like, you know, I was like, yeah, at least... I mean, it's not going to happen again for 40 years, I'm sorry. So, like, at least let them enjoy this moment. It is the first time I have ever seen the press box yell like that. They didn't do it in the 2005 Ashes. There was a weird kind of um, quiet calm when England won 2005 Ashes. But this was the first time I've seen the Lord's press box full of British press absolutely kind of lose its stuff. There was a, there was an expletive that went out and it was it was fantastic. There was just this visceral shout. Mm. And at that precise moment, you know, the cricketeers are essentially mostly elderly women who are translating the Book of Common Prayer into ancient Greek most of the time. <laughs> they are the loveliest people on the planet, but they sort of give that impression as well as, you know, maybe doing a... They'll probably make a tapestry of this final as we speak. Oh, I'd, I'd pay to would, see that. Would. But um, when this when this expletive came up, they turned and they looked really shocked, but they also realised that they couldn't really discipline the man in question owing to his sort of legendary status within the game and sort of looked a bit different and looked away and then more expletives and then they had to give up because the whole place had turned into pandemonium and chaos. I would like to dedicate today's show to this guy who I met on the walk between St John's Wood Tube Station and Lord's at 9am on Sunday morning. You've got a sign saying flew from NZ me ticket. Where did you fly from? Uh, from Christchurch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I got into London Heathrow last night at about 10 o'clock. Uh, the last flight was from Brussels. So So you've come over just for the final? 
Yeah. And you're just chancing it's it. It's great. Yeah, it's great. Someone will give me a ticket. It's no problem. Hey, do you know what? Someone at the pub got one about 45 minutes ago, a Kiwi bloke. So, uh, yeah, no. We're, wow, if you were that optimistic about getting a ticket, how optimistic are you about New Zealand winning? Oh, I'm realistic about New Zealand winning. I think we're every chance. We've got a fantastic team and uh, just the men ready to go. Okay, well, good luck. I hope you find one. Okay, thank you. Let's start at the end. This shouldn't be a spoiler for anyone listening. If it is, wow, where have you been? But the game ended in a tie, which in previous tournaments would have led to the trophy being shared. We'd have all watched Owen Morgan and Kane Williamson lift the trophy together, and it would have been very photogenic and no one would have been disappointed. But whether any of us would have been truly happy is, I think, another question. Instead, we moved on to the extraordinary denouement, a one-over, winner-takes-all micromatch, which someone at the ECB is working up as a marketing plan as we speak. We'll come back to the 100 overs that delivered us to this point in the second half of this show. But let's start with this question. Should we have just shared the trophy after 100 overs? No! (laughs) <laughs> no! No, I don't, no, don't let now. him speak. No! Listen, <laughs> no I, chance. I, I'm, I'm with you. I don't think they should share the trophy. I think sport is about those emo- that exact emotion, both polar emotions, right? The ecstasy of England winning and also the crushing heartbreak for New Zealand to be separated by the thinnest of sort of margins in inverted mm. commas. Like, I, I just, for me, it was like, it, that's what you want to feel. Like, I've grown up watching Pakistan cricket, so I know about the crushing lows, you know? I can still have nightmares about the ball kind of going towards the boundary and then Ms. Balhak about to raise the... D- and no, there's a catch, right? So this is what you want to feel. That is the feeling as a sports fan you chase, right? You may tell yourself you don't want the heartbreak, but you want to sit in a darkened room in the fetal position listening to, like, Nora Jones CDs. That's what you want. That is what you... Don't tell me you don't want that. For, you want for that. any Kiwi fans who are currently listening to Nora Jones in the background, we're sorry. We're, we're feel, really sorry. You've got to feel those emotions. It's like You've got to... It's like that's what you want from sport. You don't want to passively enjoy it. Like those visceral moments that, that you mentioned, you know, where the fans were cheering and mm. it was a really South Asian reaction from these like normally very composed English journalists. Yeah. It was really good to see just like cut loose, feel the moment, feel what you've achieved. And it's like a heightened thing. It's what you live for. It's what makes sport so exciting. So absolutely not. And I think for even for New Zealand, I think it's great for them to feel the way that they're feeling now. It might feel like a horrible <laughs> thing to say to somebody, <laughs> but I feel like... It's <laughs> good for you, Keith. They're alive, aren't they? They're think, alive, or more do they want? If, I, if <laughs> I was a parent, I'd probably use the Ferber method, you know, like where you just let your child cry through the night. Oh. In the long term, it's going to be one of those defining character like this is the middle of their mm. story it's the end of England's movie but it's the middle of New Zealand's movie and right? you can't design it you can't brand that kind of moment that's the point isn't it that's why it's so special and that's why you can't come up with it in a lab and put it together and stick labels on it and stuff it's about people at the end of the day it's about the emotions of Stokes and the arc that he's been through and the challenges he's faced it's about New Zealand always mm. kind of finishing second but also kind of punching above their weight and being a team that plays it in the right way it's about all all those things that get put into the pot and that's why people felt it and it's not anything to do with the brand or the or the labels well let's talk about the super over that got us to these emotions new zealand fielded first with Trent Bolt bowling, who'd only just bowled the final over of regular time, so he's now the answer to the pub quiz question, who bowled 12 consecutive balls in a World Cup final? Ooh, England sent what? in Joss Butler and an exhausted Ben Stokes, who was running on adrenaline, the sweet promise of redemption, and some fresh hand sanitizer that someone had run out to him. Bolt, Butler and Stokes, were they the men for the job? Well, do you know, the Stokes thing, I'm not quite sure about because he didn't time a ball all day. I was a little bit surprised. When he went off at the end of the 50th over, he was reportedly, you know, in in bits, had to compose himself, was really, really upset with himself because the last ball of the the 50th over was eminently hitable. We we may not have ended up in a super over situation had he had a slightly different thought process going on. So he'd gone off feeling really quite low about having got England so close. And they're not quite got over the line. And he was really, really struggling to time it. But the thinking was, obviously, you know, you're in, you've, you're seeing it. So you're going to go with him. I personally think they should have had Butler facing first and have Stokes at the other end. The other part of it was, I mean, you saw from the first shot he played, he had no shape to his shot. He was just like flinging himself well, off his Also, with isn't the running, he was absolutely oh, yeah. blowing Dead. after those three runs. I mean, Roy and Butler and Bairstow would probably have been the more sensible options, because all three of them were fresher, all three of them were quicker. But you can understand why, because this is business of, you know, are you in and have you got the momentum and yeah. you've just faced an over from Bolt. So 
I'm not sure that any solution was the right one, but it was certainly the most dramatic because as he came out, like covered in filth, his face as red as a man's ever been, as exhausted as a human could ever be. He looked like somebody who'd come out of that film The Hill with Sean Connery or Horrible also, Desert Bits. So, yeah, his front was kind of covered in dirt, wasn't it? But by that point, this golden evening sun was shining oh, at an angle onto the ground and it made the dirt on the front of his shirt look like blood. Seriously, wow. looked like sell, dried blood. They should sell shirt replicas with I the dirt know, on. I know, yeah, exactly. I think, that, I think <laughs> they'd Terry sell a lot of dirt on replicas. The Super Robot T-shirt. I can also yeah. manufacture them if anybody wants Just to Just even thinking about it now, I'm getting nervous again. I've okay, still got well, the buzz. I don't want to make you more nervous, but we're going to take you through this ball by ball, essentially. Uh, England hit two fours. They put together 15 runs. So now, 20 minutes after needing to defend 15 runs in the final over, New Zealand had to score 16 of them to win the World Cup. We knew England had picked Joffre Archer because we'd seen him warming up on the boundary rope in front of the pavilion, which was obviously a nice bonus for the members. He suddenly looked as young as we all know he is, only 24 years old, someone who'd never played an international game until a couple of months ago. Which begs the question, would anyone here have gone with Wokes instead? No way. It had to be Joffre. Perhaps had to be Joffre, Absolutely. yeah. I mean, this whole World Cup was about him. Uh, he was the... England had waited so long to see Joffre Archer play. I had actually predicted that he'll hit the winning runs because it was all about Archer with Rashid at the other end so that, you know, multicultural England win. But, <laughs> but you know, it was always going to be Jofra Archer because he'd bowled really, really well throughout the tournament and especially in the semi-final and the final. He had a hold over the New Zealand batsmen. You will move on to the to the first ball and they're on. But then that's when Dharmasena decided, wait, 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 wait. I need to have a talking point as well in this <laughs> super over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so that like people like, you know, there'll be a podcast when people speak about Stokes and Butler and Bolt. And, but what about Dharmasena? So, you know. <laughs> exactly. I think there's plenty to remember Dharmasena for. There's going to be books written about every single aspect of this game. Gideon Haig is going to write a book about the ball as it hit Stokes's bat as he was diving in the last <laughs> over. Simon Wilde will, will write a 1,000-page book about England's ODI team that culminates in three pages only on this final. And there'll be every book in between. But Dharmasena needs some kind of... He needs a... Like, a huge encyclopedia to explain some of his decisions. So there was that lovely moment, wasn't there, when Ben Stokes walked up to Archer, put his arm around him. I, we didn't mm. know that this was what he was saying at the time, but it's since come out that he was say, telling him this over won't define your career. Dan is already <laughs> having another little weep in the corner. But then let's also spare a thought for the New Zealand batsman. New Zealand sent Jimmy Neesham mm. to face the first ball and then they also sent out the man who's had an absolute yes. shocker of a tournament Martin Guptill, who I believe was essentially being sent out for his sprinting skills. So Kane Williamson, we know he's been brilliant throughout this World Cup, but did he get this last decision of the tournament wrong? I think so. I think you got to. I think you got to go with the big hitters, right? Like, I mean, you got so many options. You got Colin De Grondo, who strikes is the obvious option mm. to go in there with Nisham. I mean, they got the bit about Nisham on strike, right? So maybe the thinking was, it's all going to be twos, fours, or sixes. We're not really taking many singles, especially if you got up till there. So it's all about completing the twos. So I mean. It's hard to put yourself in that position, right? It's unprecedented for the captain to be in that position of having to decide who you're going to put in for the Super Over of a World Cup final. So it's hard to think after the fact. But I remember in the box, there were a bunch of people saying, like, it's got to be De Grunholm and Nisham. Everybody was kind of shocked when Guptill came out. Couldn't have been De Grunholm after his innings, though. I mean, yeah. he just got hit every ball. Absolutely, and I can, yeah. see, I can see the logic with Guptill because anyone who saw him play certainly in New Zealand against England and, and various mm. times in the last few years, he has smashed it. So maybe there was just a little thing in the back of their mind that thought maybe this is his moment in this tournament. Kane Williamson is the best batsman in their side. Well, yeah. He didn't think to send... Is he that humble? He's that <laughs> modest that he was just, not he me, is. not well, me. It is odd, isn't it? Because actually earlier on in the tournament, he did a six to win the game and he's done it before in a World yeah. Cup. So you know that he can hit it big and his temperament is extraordinary. And he's, as Jeremy Cody would say, a velocipede between the wickets. <laughs> but I, I, was, I found that a little odd. I think the Guptill thing just in itself was totally understandable because they believe in him. They, they know that he yeah. can hit a ball for six. He, and that's he, essentially he had all hit one off Archer earlier in the day. Well, there you go. He was the one person who'd hit Archer that was for six. Off, off the edge, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if New Zealand were planning to win the Super Bowl with the edge of a third man. Like, I think it, I mean, it should have been Kane Williamson, I think. Yeah, I think absolutely. He, because, as you said, there weren't actually many sixes in the day, but... 
he has the ability to find gaps and yeah I'm surprised so here we are Archer is about to run up to bowl and on the commentary Ian Smith says he can't afford a wide (laughs) Archer bowls a wide Smith also said that New Zealand needed a boundary in the first two deliveries and two balls later Jimmy Neesham creams one over mid-wicket for six we've had nine off the first three balls there are seven needed for the win who thinks the game is up at this point I'm done. It's done for me now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, actually, it's the next ball that finished it off completely for me. But this was the point at which poor old, well, some of our friends in the commentary box were now openly distraught, openly shouting, whelping at points as the ball was going down to field. You, you, that can't be two. It can't be two. Well, I'm afraid it is. Um, uh, yeah, seven off four. Having just seen the six as well, you knew that Archer had no margin for error. Yeah. You knew that it yeah. just one ball aiming for that Yorker or one ball aiming for a slower ball bouncer and Nisham picks either of them, then it's game over. And it, it was horrible. I mean, this was state my kidneys, I think, had melted. <laughs> Barney, in the press box, where a lot of us are sort of stuck, we can't move, you had the oh. you had the luxury <laughs> of being able to like either take yourself out of the room, no, put you your can't. hands in front of your eyes, or at least pace, pace you around can't, the sofa. You cannot leave the room. You fill the glass as full as it will go. <laughs> And again, every ball. I was just, I was up. I was pacing. Everyone was up. We were joining forces. We were sort of praying to any god that possibly existed anywhere. But enthralled and loving it. And what actually surprised me, as Dan said, seven or four, you think the game is up. Only one ball that just went for one run flipped the whole thing on its axis. I couldn't believe how quickly it had gone from 16 to win. We've got this. One six, you're thinking, we've lost this. One almost dot ball, for argument's sake, um, and we're back in it. Almost dot ball. I'm going to describe that almost dot ball. (laughs) Ultimately, it came down to the final ball. (laughs) New Zealand needed two to win, and Jason Roy, who'd fumbled one earlier in the over, picked up Guptill's clip to mid-wicket cleanly. Wasn't a great throw, but Butler's a great keeper. He took the ball six feet from the stumps and dived towards his target, running Guptill out as he came back for the second. I thought there would be a cheer in, in this room at that point, but... I'm still waiting to see if he gets in or not. <laughs> <laughs> any England fan knows that DRS could be called at any any stage for the next two months or two years. But that's, that's was... interesting. Like, there's these little things that we don't notice like in matches like these, right? Because Roy had fumbled the ball when he was yeah. mid-wicket for Jimmy Nisham on the other side of the ground. So I don't know how many people actually noticed that he was like, you know, Morgan moved him to mid-wicket for a right-hander on the other side of the ground. And that it was Roy, because after the deed was done, everybody was wondering who threw the ball, who threw the ball, everybody was running around. Because I don't think anybody noticed, like, that's a master stroke. Everybody's talking about Kane Williamson's, like, captaincy. And, and he got a standing ovation in the press conference, especially the Indians in the press conference room stood up and clapped for him. Nobody clapped for Morgan. But, like, yeah, and, <laughs> but, but, you know, that's a master stroke moving Roy there. Yeah, but also, I mean, think of the temperament that he had to have yeah. to handle that. I mean, I don't know how they do it. I cannot understand how they do it because they must just blank out everything that's going on around them. The, the fervid nature of the crowd at that point is right in front of the grandstand and they were going berserk. I mean, there were people just sort of mm. screaming at the top of their voices all the, from the moment the ball was bowled to the moment it went back in. So you can't hear yourself think... When the throw comes in, we, we talk about Butler at that point yeah, as well. Yeah, you know, how are your hands yeah. not just shaking like yeah. crazy? How are you able to say to yourself, oh, no, the culmination of four years' hard work and 44 <laughs> years of English failure and everybody watching around the country and the world, 90% of them around the world wanting us to fail, 10% of yeah. them wanting us to win, everything is going to matter on this. I will be a World Cup winner and so will all my mates unless I screw it up. I don't know how you do that. I mean, that's what makes me cry every time I think about it. I'm, think, oh. uh, I'm in tears. I, but I would much rather have been Roy in that situation than Butler. Yeah, I yeah, think Butler had the horrible, because he's watching these, obviously seen, yeah, he's seeing yeah, Roy. Exactly. He knows this ball is coming and he's got to wait and wait and wait and not snatch at it and not try and grab it too quickly. He's got to get it into the gloves. And then he, I mean, moved probably half a metre. Yeah, he like, yeah, moved quite a bit. It just yeah. oh, makes me well up. Isn't that so epic and heroic, that image of him reaching for the stumps? No, oh, Chapel, isn't that it? isn't it. Don't, don't you just want somebody to paint that like on a mural? Oh, Alan Knott would just have flicked one bale off, though, wouldn't he? 
I love the way he did that. Yeah. I love the way he demolished stuff. And then, then he did what everybody does when they get really, really excited. He, he became a child. He just started throwing his garments off. Yeah, <laughs> off no. comes a glove. Off comes another glove. Joffre had a box to come flying out. It was, and he's charging in one direction. Joffre's charging in another direction. Joffre threw himself to the ground. But that's and that's the moment, isn't it? That represented everybody that was watching mm. the game. Everyone would have done it. Did exactly the same thing. You know, the brown, was... the woman in the brown dress. Oh, we talked about her she was in the crowd. I mean, she did exactly that and disappeared from view, never to be seen again. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't know if she just fell through some wormhole and ended up in a parallel dimension where New Zealand won. Think how terrible that would be. <laughs> so that was the game tied again. England <sighs> did not win on that ball. They won because of boundary countback. Dan, tell us how many England had scored compared think, to New Zealand. I think it was 26 to 17 in the final analysis. I mean, it was so brilliant because there was even confusion as to whether it was boundary count back only within the super overs yeah. that were bowled. So everyone got confused on that score. But mercifully, I went out into the crowd just before the start of the super overs and the announcer made everything very clear. He said that New Zealand will need to get one more run than England in their super over. So everybody was under no illusion we got there in the end. My issue was, why not have a second super over? I mean, if you're doing penalties in football, and to me, you know, just to pick up the point we were making earlier, should it be shared? No, it shouldn't be shared. You have tiebreakers in everything. You have it in darts. You have penalty shootouts in football. You have extra time in rugby. Of course, you, you find a way to finish it. But if, you, if five penalties go and it's five all, you go to sudden death. I you mean, do. I'm not suggesting a Super Bowl. Just do another Super Bowl. They're already out there. You'd so have what to happens then the is... You'd have to cancel yeah, the Ashes. <laughs> there is no way that on. any of those players could ever have picked up a battle ball for at least six months if they'd had a second Super Bowl. Oh, that, oh, that would have been astonishing. <laughs> After the break, we'll talk about everything in the hundred overs that led up to that, including the now infamous Law 19.8 subsection 3. When Utoxeter Cricket Club had to leave their beloved grounds of 60 years, it looked like it might be the end for the area's only club. Enter NatWest Cricket Force, an initiative created to support community clubs across the country. They help them make a new home in a former cricket ground, breathing new life into the space and the team. Why? Because NatWest believes cricket should be easy for everyone to play. It's paired up with the Guardian Labs to tell more stories about experiences like these. Read them at theguardian.com forward slash natwest dash cricket. This message was paid for by NatWest. Welcome back to The Spin from The Guardian. If you're listening to this podcast and you haven't yet watched the World Cup final, you know what? Go treat yourself. Seriously, we'll wait. See you in nine hours. Oh, you're back already. Worth it, wasn't it? Now you know as much as our guests who are... Test match special commentator Dan Norcross, Crick Buzz's Barrett Sundarason, cricket loving comedian Atif Nawaz, and filmmaker Barney Douglas. Out of interest, who has watched the game again since Sunday? My hand's gone up, like- Dan's hand's gone up. Atif's hands got up. Barney's making a funny kind of like. Oh, you can't middle-y. watch it all, can you? I mean, yeah, you I did. We did it last to, night. Every go ball. To the business end. Every ball. With every fast ball. forward. Wow. Oh, I haven't uh, done every ball. No, I've, done, I've done about two hours. I'm very good at the fast forward now. I've got it down <laughs> to a fine art. If it's a fast bowler, you put plus 30 in between deliveries mm. for about one and a half seconds. And if it's a spin bowler, you only use times 12. That's okay. gee, that that's, is a great tip. Yeah. That is an absolutely that great way you tip. Never miss anything. Yeah, I like Team that. analyst. You yeah. might have changed the way I watch sports back forever. Yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, that's why. Wow. It is so much better than highlights. It takes longer than the highlights. Obviously, you can't. Every really India get, Pakistan match, you hours. mean this is how you're going to watch I'm it. I'm going to have to redo them again. I'm going to have to go through them all, all of them, each and every one. <laughs> so let's go back in time to 8 a.m. Sunday morning and the moment I opened my bedroom curtains. It's the morning of the World Cup final. I've just woken up and it's raining. It's raining in London. So naturally, my first thought on opening my eyes was England really need to win the toss and bowl. 
Uh, it has all felt rather like Christmas. I did wake up at five o'clock in the morning, desperate for the day to start. And then I got back to sleep, but I had a weird dream that England were 80 for one and the cookie monster was umpiring. I am drinking a World Cup final coffee. I'm about to make myself a World Cup final breakfast. Then I'll go and brush my World Cup final teeth. And in the meantime, I've stuck on a playlist and it's the cricket playlist on Spotify. And the first three songs are Don't Look Back in Anger, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life and Justin Bieber's Sorry. I'm pretty sure Spotify just called this game for New Zealand. Spotify omens aside, it was wet and overcast. The wicket looked good, but a little on the green side. So did Kane Williamson make the right decision to bat first or was this the classic good toss to lose? He lost Martin Guptill as a friend the moment he decided to bat because he that was the third straight time he'd done that. Under dark clouds, he'd won the toss and elected to bat and literally sacrificed Martin Guptill, thrown him under the bus. <laughs> And then re-evaluated what New Zealand uh, had to get. But if New Zealand had to win, that was the way. Put a total on the board and put England under pressure because, you know, how England are. Brendan McCullum said this after the semi-final. He was like, well, during the semi-final, in fact, against India, he said, like, it's 240, but it's 240 in a World Cup yeah. semi-final. It may as well be 340 because those each run carries a different level of gravitas to a regular game of cricket. Also... Up until that point in the World Cup at Lords, every team that had batted mm, first yeah. had, won. had won. So the choice was sound, right? And all again, if you think about the pressure of World Cup semi-final, the final, and all the history and all that dramatic stuff that Dan talked about, right? <laughs> like it still applies. So you're carrying the weight of everything as you chase down each of those runs. And we saw that with England's performance. They nearly kind of fell away. I think he made exactly the right call. I agree. Mm. Yeah. Oh, totally the right thing. And and also the way they went about it was brilliant because they knew the pitch was going to get worse because it has that every time at Lords it was getting worse. It was really weird throughout the tournament it sort of did that. But they also had this wonderful memory of what they'd done against India. And I think if you're going to play a final, you want to have as little change from what you did the last time into this time, don't you? So that you could just feel there's a continuity from your previous performance. So he got that spot on. I'm not sure that they necessarily batted particularly well. Play started at 10.45. I'm told the match ball was parachuted into the ground, but I was actually so nervous at this point, I was just pacing up and down at the back of the press box. I missed the parachutes. Can anyone confirm this actually happened? Did anybody see that? I did. It was really annoying. I was coming in <laughs> through the doors a little bit late and uh, there was a lot of people as there are milling around at a World Cup final. But what you need them to do is shuffle along at least at zombie pace if you're going to get to the press box in time for the first ball. And they weren't because they were all so excited by something that was going on in the sky. So everyone was gawping stupidly. Can I just ask, was it like each individual <laughs> ball had its own little kind of hanky parachute? Like, Because I had an action man like that when I was younger that I used to throw off the staircase. With an orange, with with an an orange, orange umbrella. Yeah. Yeah. umbrella was it that? Parachute. No, I don't think it was quite that. It, it, it was just, I think it was one on the TV, so obviously... I was at home and like experiencing it live. Um, it was just a guy with a red parachute jumped out of the plane. Oh, carrying a suitcase, yeah. James yeah, Bond style. Kind of it wasn't had... the balls going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, is... That's what they should have done. Yeah, but what That's is this what they should have done. English fascination with parachutes. I remember the 2012 <laughs> Olympics opening ceremony. The Queen jumped off on the parachute. Like, why? Well, That's clearly why they sim- did it this time round. It's because of it? the action man. Once we've been there, not so many of us had those action men. Because everyone gets anxious over the tube these days. So it's like right. Let's get in the quick way. It's the only way to avoid those stewards, to be fair. English do have a fascination with parachutes. That's a very good point. It was dramatic from the first over, and there were several early DRS reviews. Mario Erasmus, who is normally the Zeus of umpiring, even got one wrong. But the real question is, should umpire Darum Cena have even been standing in the final? No, obviously not. Uh, I, I did a tour in Bangladesh straight um, three years ago, two and a half years ago, when he staggeringly managed to make eight wrong calls. I think it was in one day. Three against Moeen Ali in the space of half an hour. Bless him, he's a lovely guy, but he didn't, hadn't come off a particularly good game in the semi-final. So his confidence wasn't in the best place. I, after he'd given Roy out while trying yeah. to signal a wide and then forgetting that they didn't have any reviews left. I mean, the whole thing was shambolic. 
he produced a shocker, didn't he? It was he that gave Ross Taylor out, didn't he? When the yeah. ball was clearly missing, the stumps yeah, it was. was going too high. Sometimes, look, sometimes you just have a bad, you're going through a bad trot. An umpire, Darmasena, was going through a bit of a bad Wouldn't trot. it have been kinder just to bench him? I mean, can't no, you do that with no, your umpiring you can, squad? No, I can't do, you can't do that because the, IC, the way the ICC works is the officials for the finals and the semi-finals and the finals were announced before the semi-finals. And it would have been really harsh to then, like, you know, yeah, I mean, he's still at your elite level umpire. You've given him the best umpire of the year award, I think, twice or thrice. So then to bench him, like, you know, and maybe yeah, they didn't want... third what? umpire. I mean, you know, anybody can do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just, just send him upstairs. Um, yeah, send Bob Tucker out though, Because whatever he would say, just do the opposite. So if, if, you want to, if you're thinking about DRS review, if he's giving you oh, out, yeah. definitely well, review I, it. I'm convinced. If he's not giving you out, then the fielding side, review. <laughs> I am convinced that the only reason that Nichols and Guptill reviewed that Guptill decision on the LBW was because Dharma Sainer had yeah. given it out. Yeah. I bet and they yeah. wouldn't have reviewed was, it if it had been Erasmus. And, and like a stop clock, you know, Dharma Sainer can be right, you know, twice a day. <laughs> and, and on that occasion he was. So, here's the New Zealand innings. Martin Guptill flashed a couple to the boundary but went cheaply and so, as we thought at the time, had made his final batting contribution of the World Cup. Barney, Wokes and Archer were threatening again. Could they be the test pairing that eventually replaces Broad and Anderson, do you think? Well, I mean... They're certainly in pole position, definitely. I think they're both playing the Ashes, to be honest. Um, I think Wokes has stepped up in this tournament and, and led the attack brilliantly. And with Archie, you've just got a natural superstar. I mean, the boy can do anything. So uh, for me personally, England have stumbled across a very, very handy pairing. But I'm sure Broad will have something to say about that. And, you know, Anderson struggling a little bit with injuries, but I think experience in an Ashes series will go a long way. Um, so I think they'll need all of them over the next few months. There'll be injuries, won't there? Yeah, I mean, you exactly. get through a five-match series. I don't understand how they're going to work it out because they've got they fallen in love again with Mark Wood, and I get that because the pace of Wood and Archer. Um, they want Anderson, they want Stokes, they want Moeen Alley. So then how you fit Wokes in, how you fit Broad in, I don't know. But I think the point will be that there'll be seven of them and they'll all play at some point because you don't get through five matches yeah. back-to-back. Anyway, let's not get ahead of ourselves because we still need to uh, mm. just spend more time glorying in what's just happened. At 102 for one, New Zealand looked like they were slowly getting their way back into the game. And then came the first of the day's turning points. Williamson was caught behind off Liam Plunkett. Darmasena got it wrong and had to overturn his original decision, naturally. And then Plunkett had Henry Nichols chopping onto his stumps a couple of overs later. I missed both these wickets because I was still obsessing over how rubbish Plunkett's first spell had been. Uh, for Williamson, I was asking Ali Martin about it. So I was looking at him instead of the pitch. And for Nichols, I was reading Plunkett's bowling figures back on Crickimpo. So I am not qualified to answer this question. But how impressive has Plunkett been in the middle overs? I mean, he has been the match winner for England in those middle overs because one day cricket has changed. It's about... Taking wickets in the middle lows, India got wrist spinners, England got Liam Plunkett. You see, he might not have the best average. He has the best muscles in world cricket. He should be in the WWE. I don't know what he's doing playing <laughs> cricket. But he doesn't have the best average or the best numbers. But he is the most successful fast bowler in the middle lows. He has been for the last two, three years. And that's where one day cricket is won and lost these days. So the first time I saw Liam Plunkett was in a picture on an Indian newspaper back in 2006. This good-looking boy with a good-looking girlfriend. They were seated like an Indian, like, you know, groom and bride on a, uh, on a jula or a swing. And then everybody was gushing over them being like, you know. And 14 years later, bearded, looking like a mean guy and taking middle or wickets. It's, he's changed so much. <laughs> but to like, you know, then see him... Win England World Cup because that's where the game turned, really. I mean, and he kept coming back and taking wickets, which is what he's done throughout the tournament, which is why he's there in the team. Does anybody know how he does it? Because this is the thing that baffles me completely. We talk about Plunkett and we look at those overs from 10 to 40 and we get the stats. But then when I watch Plunkett bowl, I'm never quite sure what it is because the wickets he takes are completely different. Some of them are caught the boundary, then there was that little edge, then there was a guide to Gully that got rid of Kohli in that all-important game against India. They come in a whole load of different ways. And I'm really baffled because normally when you think about really great bowlers and you think, well, you know, we know how Mitchell Stark's going to get you out. We know how Adil Rashid's going to try and get you out. So with a googly, we have an idea of how Archer will do it. But 
I don't think in your mind's eye, if you settle down, you think, right, when they bring Plunkett on, he's going to try and do this, and that's how he's going to get a wicket there. That's true, because that's doesn't. why they always say things like, oh, he's got the knack of taking wickets, because <laughs> knack just kind of covers it, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, it sort of does, doesn't it? He's like the guy in your village team who always tops the averages, and you, you don't know how or why he's done it, because he doesn't move the ball much, he doesn't do... I think it's bounce with Plunkett, for me. I think well, he gets bounce off lengths that batters don't expect um, when the ball's a little softer. So for me, that's probably... And I he's like doing a lot with his fingers, yeah, actually. He's bowling a lot of cutters. Mm. Where, like, and the kind of pitches that this World Cup has been played on, cutters have played a big role. I mean, even though Mitchell Stark has been getting people out, bowling them out, he's been using a lot of cutters. So has Pat Cummins. So have the likes of Bumrah and Pandya and uh, even the Pakistani Seema Latif's looking at me. I've spoken about Indian cricket too much sorry, yeah, in the yeah. last five minutes. <laughs> sorry about that. Hit so, the quota, dude. Hit yeah, the quota. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so after Williamson was out, New Zealand only managed partnerships of 15, 23, 32, 46, 13 and 8. It looked like every other New Zealand innings at this World Cup. Pretty average and, let's be honest, quite boring to watch. What did we all think at the innings break? Was 241 enough? What do you think, Atis? I thought it was it was going to be tough for England to chase that down. I think especially the way they got those runs at the end. They got to 240. There's a lot of debate about where they're going to end up. Is it going to be 180? Is it going to be 220? Will they go beyond? Will they get to 270? But I think 240 was good. Like It's historically been a decent total in his World Cup finals, or the one or two that stay in my mind anyway. It looked like it was going to be a tough score to chase down. And of course, you expect England in any normal circumstances to comfortably get home, of course. But this is not a normal circumstance. This is Lords. It's a World Cup final. It gets so quiet at Lords when it gets tense. Like, it's the quietest 29,000 people can collectively be. It's terrifying. I can only imagine, like, you know, because, like, a wicket falls, it's just silence. Like, it's like you're a museum. And there is a museum. There is a... I mean, <laughs> so it's just... It's, it's just... It's ter- like, that atmosphere is one of a kind. Like, to perform in it, like that, you broke it down. Like, even in the those moments where they show such incredible competence, you know, I, I like I fall to pieces just thinking about it. Like when you're a club match playing on a Sunday and you're a fine leg and the ball is rushing towards you, I still got a long barrier, at man. I don't, <laughs> have, I don't have that confidence to lean down and just grab it and just chuck it. The kind of competence with which they conducted themselves mm. I kind of imposed my own lack of competence on them or just that mental instability and thought well this is going to be really hard it's going to be challenging in so many different ways they might not get there well let's talk about the fielding because after the Pakistan loss we were commenting on England dropping catches and a bit of sloppy outfielding but ever since England's fielding's been exceptional hasn't it well you say that Emma but I was a bit worried that the Joss Butler four wides at the end of the New Zealand innings was going to come back to haunt us and it very nearly did so I was a bit concerned about that that made me nervous just generally the the standard of um, of England's fielding in the final I thought was given the stakes was exceptional best though is just amazing they put a track on him didn't they they don't have a track on all of them but He'd run some ludicrous distance against India when, when the ball was actually going around the park a little bit more. The speed at which he legs it from one side to the other, both sides actually. I mean, there were some one-handed diving yeah. saves on the boundary by Nisham, mm. uh, by Bairstow, by Wokes that are just, you know, for the ages. And it, was, it made the game really dynamic, yeah. didn't it? Because yeah. often, you know, without fours and sixes, you could say, oh, another single or another two. But... They were cutting off balls that had no, they had no right to cut off. And so actually, the game, even though it was 241, played 241, had this incredible sense of motion going on at all times and desperation. And that's draining, that intensity. Well, I wanted to talk about this because here is something I didn't expect. 25 overs into the New Zealand innings, I felt like I'd been there all day. 35 overs in, I felt like I'd been there since March. Honestly, by the time we reached the final 10 overs, I was completely exhausted. I don't know if it was the tension. I don't know if it was the occasion. I don't know if it was that attritional batting style or everything combined. I just wanted to know, was that just me or or did anybody else feel like that? Absolutely, on the floor for halfway. But that's the stakes, isn't it? It's context and the stakes of a match and what's on the line. And that's what makes it a spectacle. And, And I think... That's why everyone enjoy. Well, enjoy is an interesting word, but that's why everyone was so enthralled by it because there was so much riding on it, and every piece of fielding or every dot ball, even 
actually had context to the game. And you really felt like you had sat through a six-week competition at that stage and also 44 years of not winning it. Tired as I was, I didn't have a nap at the innings break. Bolt had an LBW shout against Jason Roy first ball and it was like a defibrillator to the heart. Roy somehow got away with an umpire's call decision even though the ball was clearly going to hit leg stump in anything but a theoretical universe. He still went cheaply with the score on 28. Just looking at the strike rates of England's top order tells you how tough it was out there. Bairstow, 36 from 55 balls, Joe Root, 7 from 30, and Morgan, 9 from 22. And if all that doesn't sound bad enough, let's just take a moment to consider that Colin de Grandhomme had figures of 10, 2, 25, 1. <laughs> it was amazing. That is the most amazing thing of the whole lot. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the most astounding statistic that will ever come out of the World <laughs> Cup final. <laughs> No, everybody will talk about Wasim Akram's two great deliveries from the 92 World Cup. If New Zealand had won Colin de Grandhomme's beautiful dibbly-dobbly spell of 10 overs on the trot, would have like completely, like nobody would talk about Wasim Akram. It would, would have, have inspired ever. a generation of dibbly-dobbly. Uh, absolutely, that bring back the dibbly-dobblies. Did back. anybody else feel like those 10 overs went on forever, though? Yes, yeah. including That's Joe Root. Joe Root also so slowly. It just takes ages to get to the other end. Every single aspects of him. I mean, the fact that he looks like the perfect fusion of Eric Cantona and Louis Spence is just so weird. And to have him sort of charging in, I mean, he charging has... Charging in? Charging in. Lumbering. He lumbers, but he lumb- I mean, I don't know what he's like, but he looks to me to be the sort of person who has great clarity of thought, because <laughs> I don't think that he needs to think a great deal mm. about anything. It's just he's going to bowl it in exactly the same place every time. And he'll look a little bit like a sort of sad cow if it goes over his head for six. And otherwise, he'll just keep on ruminating. It's just brilliant. So, Barrett, were New Zealand bowling out of their skin or were England choking? I think it was good captaincy. And Kane Williamson like, like won that semi-final against India completely through his captaincy. Like Nobody expected Colin de Grandhomme to come on at that stage. And But see, English society, what is like? how do you define English society in one word? Irony, right? Everything's about irony. <laughs> Here we are talking about a World Cup. Right? It was all supposed to be about boundaries and scoring 350 and how England will... If the opposition makes 350, England will score 400 and win the game. And that's what it was all about. And here was England scratching and scraping and, like, you know, everybody was celebrating the every single run. It was like, they, 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 they went about that run chase like scavengers more than, like, you know. That's so true because if Express Yourself is their kind of brand of cricket, I really felt like their brand values just took a massive knock in that game. It was kind of like, you know, the, the stock of that company just dropped. Yeah. They expressed themselves in the manner of my parents' wedding pictures from the 1950s, which involved zero Express Expression. I can tell you, it was just look as straight-faced and miserable as you possibly can. Happiest day of your life, guys. Well, Atherton's 1996 one day side, so yeah. 240 was about par for them. Probably. I'm glad. I was worried when you were, I saw you pointing at my yeah. picture that you were about to say something well, rude about No, no, well, Michael. I love Athers. I love him. I think there was one problem for England that we haven't touched on, which is that Matt Henry bowled the most sensational oh, yes. spell of outswing, mm. and he bowled all the way through the power play, he made the ball move really, really late. I mean, this is a guy bowling basically English-style away swingers at 85, 86 miles an hour at Lords. No one could lay a bat on it. Mm. I mean, it's a miracle that Roy yeah. actually connected with any of them. Exactly. And as for poor old Joe Root, you know, he's got Henry at one end and then he's got this sort of lumbering colossus coming in at the other end with no pace on the ball. And that's what it just looked like the most cruel way to neuter something as brilliant. It was like the Kiwis had put sugar into the petrol and bit of a Formula One car, you know, or a potato in the exhaust. You're always told that that would make it stop. It was real mountebankery and skullduggery. It requires just one bit of Dennis the Menace action to take down the entire mm. edifice. It was brilliant. But it's a good point because England could so easily have been five or six down Absolutely. for nothing. Pretty much. I mean, yeah. if Maria Erasmus had had a lighter lunch, England would have been like, you know, would have lost the wicket of the first ball. I blame it on the lunch. Like, yeah. Because you can, you could actually, if you see the, and you've seen the highlights and the replay, just go back and look at Maria Erasmus. The, the, the moment the ball hits his pad, he's almost like, did I actually see that? Okay, I mean, let's just, let's just hope they don't DR us this. Like. <laughs> 
Um, so we were basically saying a nerdler, a nerdler, my kingdom for a nerdler at this point. And Stokes and Butler show, they came together at 86 for four in the 23rd over and they batted carefully but effectively for the next 20 overs, adding 110, which was easily the biggest partnership of the final. It's not the first time Stokes has played this middle order accumulator role in the World Cup. He couldn't get England home against Sri Lanka or Australia, running out of partners in the former and getting starked in the latter. Is this a more mature post-Bristol Ben Stokes, Atif? Yeah. Absolutely. You know, you associate a style of play with Ben Stokes and like and you in a World Cup final, you wouldn't begrudge him not exactly staying in control of himself or retaining his composure. But he was just so composed and so focused on the task at hand and just, you know, he was there and it was, there was a sense of real calm, even though a bunch of wickets had fallen and it was, it felt like it was quite precarious, like you're crossing that rickety bridge over this endless valley, like uh, you know, you got Josh Butler there as well and Josh, Josh Butler's my favourite player and he's there with Stokes and it's like, okay, they're going to do this, they're, they're going to do, it was a bit awkward but they're definitely going to do this, it's definitely going to happen calm down, relax, it's going to happen it's cool, just chill, it's fine and then, oh my god he got out, oh my god, and it was terrifying it was a terrifying because somebody just started. I just saw like my arch enemy on the end of the bridge, cutting it one string at a time, right? <laughs> like just taking, just taking it out one strip at a time. I was thinking about this, by the way. Like I know it's slightly on a tangent, but if you were going to make the biopic based on that final, which player are you picking? There's so many players to focus on. I mean, Ben Stokes is the obvious answer, I guess, but but I think that's could- what actually what carried them through. Like, I think that's spot on the money. I think friendship and that kind of yeah. collective, the fact that it was Butler and Stokes, yeah. they were get, able to get themselves together. There was no rivalry between them. There was mm. no like disconnect between them. They were very bonded as friends themselves, but then also as a dressing room. I think that was one of the key yeah. things that everybody played this part, in, even in the final. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you know and I'll tell you why I don't know. It's because I think if I'm honest with myself, while I was watching that partnership, and Barrett can witness this, he, he will tell you this is true. Butler was timing it like no one else in the match, absolutely. So when Butler was on strike, I really I wasn't too concerned because he was getting the odd boundary, which is necessary, but Stokes wasn't. And... I turned to Jared Kimber, who was doing our kind of analysis role on radio, and said, what's the most number of runs that have been scored in a five-over stretch Mm. in this match? And I asked him that after about 38 overs of England's innings, so he'd had about 88 overs of the match. He came up with 36 runs between overs 43 and 47 of New Zealand's innings. And by this stage, the rate was now creeping up. They'd gone to over seven, it was about seven and a half, nearly eight. So what England have now got to do with 12 overs to go is basically go faster than anyone has gone in this match in a five-over burst, but keep doing it for 12 overs. So all it's going to take is one mistake, one wicket, and they've got loads of Trent Bolt to bowl. I mean, maybe it's just because I'm naturally pessimistic and you guys... Uh, uh, altogether more sunny disposition. I, I, I didn't feel but, confident. No, but, I, mean, I, I, I did three, three England games with, uh, sorry, Barney, like with, with Dan, like, you know, on SEN radio. And honestly, for me, it felt like, you know, this is supposed to be the feel-good rom-com that England has been hoping for, right? That's what this World Cup was supposed to be. But with him, like, it almost felt like we were watching different movies on the same screen. <laughs> it, was, it was always a horror movie with him. Like, I was seeing a boy and a girl go on a date. He was like, no, no, that's going to be an accident now. <laughs> they won't just not get together. They're not even going to make it to the end. Well, I, Dan I think that's a, every I was English right. Yeah, Dan had a point. Yeah. Ben Stokes hit out towards mid-on. Trent Bolt took a catch just inside the rope. His momentum caused him to take a step backwards. And you could see him look around to spot the boundary. But by the time he'd seen it, it was already too late. He'd stepped on the sponge. And even though Martin Guptill was just yards away, it was too late to enact the bounce-back relay throw. In any other game, this would probably have been the turning point of the match, I think. Is that fair? I think it still actually was. was. Everyone looks, obviously, the the ball hitting Stokes a little later. But for me, that was the moment when I... Because I really thought we were struggling at that point. What was, we, it? was it? Was it 22 off nine? 22 off nine. Because it then went 16 oh, off eight, didn't yeah. it? Yeah. One and then the out. I think yeah. for me, that kept England in the game. Yeah. And then suddenly also, what it also did, which we often forget when we think, oh, the pressure on a chasing side. There was pressure on the New Zealand bowlers as well. They were, they were feeling it because suddenly they were actually in the box seat to win the World yeah. Cup. So... It, there was pressure on both sides and once you step on a boundary rope yeah. you're not human if you don't start to think 
hang on a minute, this has got one of those moments written all over Have it. I just stepped on the World Cup? <laughs> 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 Very good, I think. <laughs> <laughs> two, two things came to mind the moment it happened as well, didn't they? The first one is the hideously brilliant sportsmanship of Kiwis. The, the moment it happened, he instantly signalled six. Didn't even bother to yeah. see if he could get away with it. Didn't want the super you know, over. Just, no, just went straight up like that. And went straight up and also Stokes did the same thing, oh, yeah. which I thought was really weird. It's like, here's a moment of great sportsmanship and then here's Stokes going, no, it was six. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just make sure something right yeah. down. It was definitely six. Village but, cricket. Then, but then the second part of it is that didn't everybody's brains instantly go to the New Zealand-West Indies game when Bolt, on the boundary of Brathwaite yeah. takes that catch which if he doesn't take that catch they, they might not have made the semi-finals yeah. and he takes it brilliantly just inside the sponge and he takes it slightly to his side whereas on this time he took it coming at him and you thought can you really have karmic retribution on somebody as undeniably lovely as Trent Bolt I mean is that even possible no but it's what it felt like it was it wasn't it wasn't karma and he's actually really good at that like he's taken so many he can drop some sitters like some absolute sitters but on the boundary when the ball is over his head as strange as it sounds he's at his best he's at his most comfortable taking catches there and like you know, and they practice it like you know, Barney. We've seen it during practice sessions. They practice it like immensely during you know, every T Twenty tournament, and they do it so often. And that you don't see that happen. And for that to happen in a World Cup final with Bolt having to bowl the final over, it it was just meant to be. Like you know, that's when we speak so much about karma in this country more than in mine. Uh, and like you know, <laughs> it, it, it just came back. All the hard work England have put in over the last four years. It just like you know, it's those moments. So England did then need 15 off the final over, bowled by Trent Bolt, to win. And there were some pretty cool heads in the middle. The first two balls went for no runs, with Stokes deciding that to have any chance he needed to be on strike. Sensible man. Then he hit a six into the leg side, nine off four required. And at this point, could you all please take out your laws of cricket? <laughs> ben Stokes hit the fourth ball of the final over to Martin Guptill at deepish midwicket. Needing nine to win and wanting to retain the strike, Stokes pushed hard for two. The pick up and throw were good, and Stokes might have been run out had the ball not ricocheted off his bat. Now, that in itself was lucky enough, but Ben Stokes is luckier than anybody. Down on his knees, he watched as the ball headed off towards the boundary and realising no one could stop it, he raised his hands in apology. It had gone for four, plus the completed runs, so that's six in the book, isn't it, Dan? I always assumed that it was. Every single game of cricket I've ever played in, that would have been just given a six. No one would have even thought about it, except that what came to light was that it probably shouldn't be. However, if you would like, I'll read you out the law, and then I might read you my brother's interpretation. My brother is a moral philosopher in Colorado, and as a result is a monstrous pedant <laughs> who is usually right about things. I'm not sure if he is or if he isn't, but I've never had more tweets in my life than what occurred after posting his interpretation. So, Law 19.8, which everybody is now familiar with, overthrow or willful act of fielder. If the boundary results from an overthrow or from the willful act of a fielder, the run scored shall be one, any runs for penalties awarded to either side, and two, the allowance for the boundary, and three, the runs completed by the batsman, comma, together with the run in progress, if they had already crossed at the instant of the throw or act. So now everybody starts thinking, hang on, when the throw came in, they'd only run one and they hadn't crossed for the second run. Had the ball ricocheted off the stumps, for example, while his bat had been grounded and run away for four, we'd all have gone, well, that's four, whether they'd crossed or not. So my brother's interpretation is typically academic. One gives no runs, no penalties to other side. Two gives four for the boundary. Three, clearly, at least to me, gives two runs. The runs completed by the batsman were two. The batsman completed two runs. The bit after the comma is irrelevant here. Punctuation is important. The, if they had already crossed at the instant of the throw or act, doesn't qualify the bit before the comma, the runs completed by the batsman, but the bit after the comma, together with the run in progress. If there were a second comma after in progress, there might be a stronger case for five instead of six, but there isn't, so there isn't. <laughs> so make of that what you will. <laughs> I, think, I yeah. think we're all looking in the wrong place anyway. It's Guptill's fault. He should never have... Oh, absolutely. He shouldn't have lobbed it in. He should have let them have two. Should have just got it back to the bowler. 
Yes, and that's the other thing. He threw to the long end. Yeah. If he'd thrown to the short end, which it in this case was the bowlers, hit Stokes's bat at all. It, it would have hit Rashid's bat. There was, <laughs> there was, and, and risk, there was far how, more risk involved in trying to run it. How is anyone ever going to foresee that happening? Like it's never happened. Like you chuck them. Oh, it's definitely going to hit the batsman and ricochet off. There is no way. This is so Captain Hindsight. It's unbelievable. So we had three to win. Adil Rashid was at the non-striker's end. By the way, he hasn't faced a ball yet. And when Stokes makes contact, the pair starts sprinting with only one result in mind. Take two. Rashid's running to the danger end. And at least if he gets out, Stokes is still on strike. So he's essentially sacrificing himself. And he did. Sacrificial lamb. Bolt had to do some nifty wicket-keeping without the gloves to take the ball and whip the bales off. Final ball, or so we thought, of the game. Two to win. Stokes goes for delicacy and tips the ball with soft hands down to long on. And they start the same sprint for two, with the same result. This time, Mark Wood out. One completed run. Scores level. Game tied. Nothing else to talk about, is there? No. Um, ben Stokes receives a full toss on his leg stump, which would ordinarily smash into the mound stand for six. And instead, he plays the most deliberate push. And I kind of know what he was doing at this point. He actually thought England had lost the game. So he had to guarantee the super over. That was what was going through his brain. I reckon if, in actual fact, England had needed eight off that over and had picked up six off the first five balls, needed two off the last ball, he would have hammered that out of the ground. But he was so relieved to have got them back into it that he then played the most uncharacteristic shot you're ever going to see. And I tell you, the pandemonium that that then created in every press box, at every one of our radio yeah, stations, yeah. and in the crowd, the, the disbelief. The, have you seen what Ian Smith yeah, yeah. does when he realises it's a super over? He crump- he's not a small man. He crumples over a giant computer keyboard with loads of lights going, they're going to a super over. <laughs> Adam Collins in our box just went full on Australian. <laughs> Aggers had lost it. People were, at this stage, they were starting to cry already, the tears that they were then going to continue crying for the next, I would say, what, 28 hours? No, more, if we're going to count this morning. I cried through the night last night. But I'm not surprised at all with the shot Ben Stokes played. Imagine having to live with, having lost him, be responsible for two World Cup final defeats. Because as soon as he played that shot, like, this scene flashed in front of my eyes. The morning after the World T20 final in the team hotel in Calcutta, I was there interviewing someone and Ben Stokes was sat there with his partner, covered by this one of those, the leaves of one of those typically ornamental plants you find in five-star hotels. He was with his partner, nobody spoke to him. People were just walking past him. It almost felt like he'd been bereaved. You didn't know what to say to him. Carlos Brathwaite walked past him and like flashed the faintest of smiles saying, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. And I'm sure it all came back to Ben Stokes at that point. Imagine if he had gone caught now trying to swing that full toss over the ropes and having to live with that. Well, he like mentioned it. it. He yeah. mentioned, he mentioned, was it Mushfika Rahim who had done the same, the Bangladeshis oh, had done yeah, the same said, thing, needing two runs to win off four balls and Mushfika Rahim had yeah, sort yeah, of yeah, cheered, hadn't he? He'd, he'd, he'd celebrated way before the event and then Bangladesh promptly hit the next three balls up in the air <laughs> were all out. So he said that apparently that was what was going through his mind. He was not going to do that. He was going to make absolutely certain that the ball went along the ground. It just looked so odd. and the, I mean, it just resulted in ground... Can you have groundhog balls? Because <laughs> it was essentially the same thing happening in both, wasn't it? I just love the fact that at that crucial moment in his life, that defining moment, Mushfiqur Rahim was Rahim in his mind. That's <laughs> nice, you know. Because that happens to all of us, yeah. doesn't it? You know? Come on. With his arms in the air. Yeah. Well, yeah. Stokes made that decision, and you know what happened next. They're claiming it's the best one-day international ever. Are they right? I mean, the first 70 overs weren't that good, were they? You said that, Atty. Yeah, I mean, I was just being mean because I think the best matches in one-day cricket history happened in Sharjah and nobody watched them. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, I think it, it was undoubtedly one of the greatest one-day internationals. Like, I, it's it's not, like, it's implausible. Would Who would sit back and watch a nine-hour sporting event after the fact, especially in 2019, mm. when you know your attention span is already shot, right? It's it's over. You need to do three things at the same time, and 
I would definitely watch that final back from start to end. It's got this incredible dramatic film-like quality. There's no coincidence that people keep drawing comparisons between films and drama and like these metaphors are flying around. It's because that's what it was. It was like the most beautiful dramatic story. It leaves you with everything that you want from a story, which is a little bit of satisfaction, but also a little bit of this sinking feeling as well that you get on behalf of the antagonist and the protagonist. You know, it's hard to walk away from a World Cup final like that feeling completely one thing. You don't completely feel joy. You don't completely feel mourning. You do, I mean, perhaps the joy that you feel is greater than any joy you've ever felt. And this, the sorrow you feel is quite intense as well because it's on behalf of something. But it's one of those things that reaffirms your faith in human empathy because you feel, you feel like you've never felt before. And the rest of the world looks in on England and thinks, wow, they know how to feel stuff. Didn't know that. <laughs> it's true. I was, I was actually, I mean, I think I had a very bodily experience, I would say. I was shaking, actually physically shaking. And then, but I agree, I think later on, especially when things had calmed down and, and you're watching Joe Root and his kids who are all wearing unbelievably cute replica shirts <laughs> run around the field. There is a weird other emotion that comes in, isn't there? Totally. And I, I mean, I have this thing in sporting events in which I'm emotionally invested where I shake from the first mm. moment to the end. I have to have like hot water bottles, blankets, everything. I'm just shaking. I haven't had that with cricket for five years, probably quite a long time. And during that final, particularly the end of it, I was going like I was absolutely ticking and I think you know when you think of them players making decisions under that pressure as well and I was actually talking about this kind of mixture of emotions I was happy that we went to a super over because I felt to win it off the bat and everything like that it didn't quite feel right almost I they wanted needed, New Zealand to still have another chance yeah. and it just made it this kind of perfect moment really where I felt like England had to, had to do that bit extra to earn it and New Zealand still had a sniff, which is what they deserved. So It was just heartbreaking seeing Jeremy Coney and Brian Waddle upstairs because for them, it would just be everything. New Zealand cricket is a really tiny thing mm. and they are the only two, along with Ian Smith, Simon Dool, real broadcasters, mm. two in radio, two on TV, really, I suppose Danny Morrison. Mm. So their world is small. And it could suddenly have been a defining moment, not just for their players, but for them and everything that they've put into it and all the places. You know, they have watched so many games of cricket with 220 people in a university ground in yeah. Napier and Dunedin. And they could have had that moment and it was taken away from them. And I felt more sorrow for New Zealanders and I felt joy for Englanders. And actually downstairs, we went and had a, a fag afterwards and the, the fans were coming round. The Kiwi fans, to a man, were... Wonderful. I mean, I've just, I couldn't have been like that. If we'd been on the other side of that, it would have been, oh, you're joking. Not eat, not cricket as well. But they were just lovely and they're beige and, you know, gave us a big hug and said, you know, we had a great game, it was a great day, isn't cricket been marvellous? I thought, oh, you're so much more mature and intelligent than us. Where's Jacinda Arden? <laughs> a final word for New Zealand. They tied the game twice and went away with runners-up medals that I suspect are leaving a burning sensation around their necks. What can they take from this, Barrett? They can take so much because it's still a youngish team. And this, like, imagine being, like, you know, they were thrashed by Australia in 2015. Like, that was a very emotional World Cup for them as well with Martin Crowe. And because Martin Crowe was so close to the likes of Williamson, especially Ross Taylor, to be thrashed like that then and to come here and they played a bunch of very ordinary games. I bumped into a couple of former New Zealand players during the semi-final and they were like, yeah, this team deserves to go out. And then to come back from the dead and win that semi-final, and then, you know, they didn't lose the final. It was just that everything in English cricket has been about boundaries for the last four years. So it was just justifiable that they won on boundary count, really. And New Zealand can only improve from here. But I worry for a few guys. Like, there was this image of Martin Guptill from the semi-final against India when he had just got out. And he was sitting in a dark corner in the dressing room and the camera kept zooming closer and closer into him. That looked like a horror movie scene. It didn't look right. But it'll take a lot for them to recover from this. Like, what do you tell yourselves? Like, you know, we did everything right. We bowled out England. England bowled out and still won a run chase. Like, that does, that's never happened before. That cannot happen, technically. So, but they brought so much to the tournament. Nobody expected them. Like, it was all about an India-England final and then Pakistan rekindling the, like, you know, the flame of 1992. No Nobody spoke about New Zealand till they beat India. And they came from nowhere. And 
And they gave us the best final the World Cup has ever seen. Well, it's time to say a momentary goodbye to my guests, Atif, Barney, Dan and Barat. There was just too much to fit into one episode, so next time we'll all be back to give our final thoughts on the 2019 World Cup and work out how to fill this World Cup-shaped void in our lives. And just because I like the way it sounds, let's finish with this. England are World Cup winners. Woohoo! <laughs> The Spin is supported by NatWest. To find out about how NatWest is making it easier for everyone to get involved in cricket, search NatWest Cricket.